Well, today I continue in the series that I began last week. It's a series I'm calling Show Us the Father. Today I'm going to minister for a little while through a message that I'm calling The Virtue of Faithful Love. As I mentioned in the previous message, there are several things, culprits, if you will, several issues, several things that are responsible for camouflaging and marginalizing the virtues of the Father. And today I'm going to probably do a little overlapping. I believe the statement is true. Repetition is the motherhood of learning. As we hear things over and over again, it begins to flush out these old mindsets. They don't leave easily. People in life get programmed, coming up in their families, coming up in their schools, coming up in their churches. You get programmed about life in general, including God. And so all of us have a belief system that is different from one another. You can all be in the same church, but yet believe different when it comes to different things. Why? Because you were programmed a certain way and you don't want to let loose. You don't want to let go of it because that means you either have to admit you were wrong. And I've done a lot of that over the years. I've just admitted that, look, that was not right the way I taught it. I'll be the first one to say it. So we're all growing in this grace, and the Father is revealed to us moment by moment by moment. I don't know if in the condition that we're in without our glorified bodies that we could stand it if he showed himself to us all at once. I think it would just quite honestly kill us. And so there are things in life that have this way of camouflage, and everybody knows what camouflage is, right? It means you blend in, you kind of hide, you conceal something. There are things in life that camouflage, things in life that have a way of marginalizing. That means they put them out on the fringes. The virtues of God, and the virtues of God are so enormous. We sang about them today, and what a beautiful name. What a powerful name. What a wonderful name. And so things get marginalized. One of the schemes that is deployed by the enemy against believers in an effort to hide the virtues. Now think about it for a second. If you're an enemy, you don't want to say good things. You don't want to affirm the truth. You don't want to affirm the good things about someone else. And so the enemy doesn't want to affirm anything good about God. And so one of the schemes he uses to hide the virtues, the qualities, the moral excellence of God, is to get people to question their identity as a son. Now, every single person in this room has went through that somewhere in their Christian life. Am I really saved? Am I really his? Am I really his son? Am I really his daughter? And we long in our heart to hear a resounding yes, 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 yes. And we go through this and then it's not long and somewhere down the road, we go through the same thing over and over again. So one of the enemy schemes, and when I say enemy, I'm not talking just about the devil. I'm talking about the flesh. Sometimes even other people can be an enemy to your spirit man. But one of those things is to get us to question, to get us to doubt our identity as sons of God. If you can't see yourself as a son, then it will be basically impossible to see God as father. I know that's kind of a profound statement. But there's a relationship. When you look at father, you think of son. If I say, this is my father, 
then that means I've already seen myself as son. He is my father. So if you can't see yourself as a son or a daughter of God, then it's going to be very, very challenging, probably nearly impossible to see God as father. If you see yourself as a servant one day and then a son the next, then you know what it's going to do? It's going to give you this mixed identity. One day I see myself as I'm just a servant of God. Listen, that is not my identity. I am a son of God who serves. I'm not a servant of God. That is not my identity. I am a son who serves. And so this mixed identity is what people are dealing with, especially believers. And so when you have a mixed identity, then you have a mixed opinion. You have a varying opinion of the Father also. One day you see him as loving and kind and gracious and sweet. And the next day you see him as stern and maybe mean and distant. God doesn't want us to have a varying opinion of him. He wants us to every day have this confidence that we come to him boldly and have this great confidence that we can say, great are your promises, O God. If you believe that the Father's faithfulness is contingent upon your faithfulness, then you have set yourself up for a lingering period of unrest and you have overlooked the virtue of faithful love. I hope that sits in your heart this morning. Let me say it again. If you set yourself up in this mindset that he is only faithful based upon me being faithful, what do the scriptures tell us? When we are faithless, that means we are not faithful. We are without faith. We are not exercising faith. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. He does not change. So his faithfulness is not contingent upon our faithfulness. Now, I would encourage you to be faithful. Be faithful in all you do. Be faithful in your home. Be faithful with your spouses. Be faithful in everything. But whether or not you are faithful or not, God is committed to being faithful to you. You have to see that. You have to believe that. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, we find these words. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So this was no surprise. Jesus was led by the very Spirit of God into the wilderness. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. Let's just put it simple. Jesus was hungry, okay? And when the tempter came to him, that is the devil, he said, if thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, it is written. I love that part. Friends, we need to grab a hold of the word and embrace the word. You're going to find life in the word. There is no substitute for the word of God, whether it's coming through the scriptures, whether it's coming through a rhema word that he speaks into your heart. There is no substitute for the word. So Jesus says, when the tempter comes to him, it is written. He says, man does not live by bread alone. In other words, he's saying, listen, man does not live by the natural substance alone. You cannot function. You cannot get through life as a believer by trying to live just a natural life. Man does not live by bread alone, but he said, but by every word. Now, Jesus himself said this in the midst of temptation by the enemy, the onslaught of the enemy. He says, it is written. 
Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That needs to be something that's really tethered to our hearts as well. When I find myself in a situation, what does the word say? It is written. What does the word tell me? How does the word instruct me? How does the word guide me? So let's ask the question. <laughs> what in the world did the devil have in mind when he suggested that Jesus turn stones into bread? Well, nothing good, of course. You know that, don't you? Nothing good, of course. You see, friends, a hungry man will swallow just about anything, but Jesus would have no part in providing for himself. I want you to see that in the scriptures now. Jesus had no part in providing for himself. Could Jesus have commanded those stones to become bread? Yes. He's Christ. He's the miracle worker. He's the water walker. He's the water into wine guy. Yes, he could have turned stones into bread. That would have been easy. He would have just said, stones become bread. And those stones couldn't have argued with him whatsoever. They would have instantly became the best bread that you've ever tasted in your life. Am I getting you hungry? Mmm. You know, there's just nothing like bread, is there? Mm, I mean, homemade bread. When it's bacon in the house, there's nothing. I don't care what it is that smells like bread. Can I get an amen? Anybody like bread in here? I mean, bread smells better than even a turkey or a roast. There's just nothing like bread. It's one of those few things that your mouth starts watering even as you're taking that drawn butter across the top of it. The heat plumes are rising on it and it's just soaking right in. It's just melting right in. And Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and the first thing he tempts him with is one of man's favorite things at a dinner, bread. And Jesus could have turned those stones into bread but he would have no part in providing for himself. You know why? He trusted solely in his father's provision. He was trusting solely in the virtue of faithful love coming from his father to provide for him. Now, Satan was not concerned about feeding the hungry, was he? No, of course not. And he wasn't concerned about strengthening Jesus. Jesus would have been weak as a man after 40 days and 40 nights. Look, I've been on a couple of 40-day fasts. I know what it feels like at the end of those 40 days. I really do. And I know how it takes so little of food to feel like you're just as strong as an ox. You just feel so strengthened with just a couple of bites. I understand this situation here. I believe what uh, Satan had in mind was to get Jesus, first of all, to question his identity as the Son of God. I want you to notice how the devil framed the statement with that conjunction, if. If thou be the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. In other words, Satan inferred that Jesus' provision might be hinged on an if, a condition, rather than based solely upon the virtue of faithful love. That's what Christ was trusting in. He knew that his daddy loved him. He knew that his daddy loved him before the fast, during the fast, at the end of the fast. He was trusting in his father's faithful love. Not only did Satan want to get Jesus to question his identity, but then he suggested that Jesus worked to prove that he was the son of God by doing something. If you really are the son of God, 
do something. If you really are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Do you see how he does this? It's the same tactic. It's the same trick that he uses on believers to this day. He has no new tricks, friends. Through our thoughts, he tries to make us question our sonship and then implants the idea that we should somehow go to work to prove that we're a son, go to work to prove that we're a daughter by doing something. Well, I've got news for the devil. I've got news for my flesh, my provision, and my right standing as the son of God did not come, nor is it maintained by my doing, friends. It's not that way. I am kept by my father through the virtue of faithful love. Another culprit that is responsible for camouflaging and marginalizing the virtues of the father is the mixture of old covenant with new covenant. You know what? I think I'm going to be talking about that subject until Jesus comes or until I go to see him. Because I see it as the greatest hindrance, the greatest stumbling block for most believers. They don't even realize they've done it. They don't realize they're doing it. They're mixing the old covenant with the new covenant. The old covenant contained the law. The law was the ministry, what does it call it? Of death. The law is called the ministry of condemnation. But I have good news for you. Through one act of the Father's faithful love, the old covenant was rendered obsolete through the cross of Christ, friends. And under the new covenant of grace, there is no condemnation for the believer. Please take that home today. Under the new covenant of grace, there is zero condemnation from God for the believer. Therefore, in the absence of the law, we are not under the law. The law was made obsolete for us. In the absence of the law, so I can't give any credit to this law. In the absence of the law and the no-show of condemnation, we need never to be afraid of our Father God. You know, I know that sounds ridiculous to some people. They're going like, really? People are afraid of God? <laughs> Friends, people are so afraid of God. What do you think condemnation is? You're afraid of what God's going to do to you. You're fearful that he's going to punish you for some reason. So you're afraid of God. Do you realize that Adam and Eve had no fear whatsoever until they broke the only commandment that God had given them, which was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And once they had eaten the fruit from the forbidden tree, you know what happened? They instantly fell into fear. Instantly. I mean, just immediately. They didn't look at each other and go, what, what, what just happened here? What, what's going on here? No, they immediately fell into fear. In fact, the scriptures just say, and Adam was afraid, and so he ran and he hid. Who did he hide from? Not Eve. <laughs> Eve's right next to him. They've got a bush big enough that hides both of them, but they're hiding from God because they know God comes down in the cool of the day to walk with them, and they know that he's going to have to talk to me about this. Oh, it reminds me, man, when I made my daddy mad about something when I was growing up, one of the first things I would do before he got home, I'd put on about nine pair of underwear because I just knew daddy was going to wear me out, afraid of my daddy. I knew he was going to really get me good for what I had done. Friends, we don't have to have a relationship like that with the father. We don't have to be afraid of him. But Adam has broken a law. He's broken the only law that God gave him. You cannot eat from this tree, Adam. 
for the day you do it, you shall surely die. You say, Pastor Mark, shouldn't we fear God also when we sin? Now, come on, that's a normal thing you'd think, wouldn't you? And the answer to that is no. I know that might surprise you. You're going to say, why? <laughs> why would you say something like that? Because our covenant does not contain an if thou art or a thou shalt not. <laughs> Did you get that? You see, that's the words that Satan said to Jesus. He said, if thou art the son of God. Our covenant doesn't contain that. Our covenant doesn't contain the thou shalt not. That's what God said to Adam. Look, if there would have been a better way to do Adam and Eve, God would have known about it and he would have done it. He had to put them in a situation where they could choose. Love is about a choice, friends. You cannot be robotic. You cannot program a robot to love you, friends. It has no ability. It's not made in the image of God. It's not made in the likeness of God. It will do what you've programmed it with and it will go through all the motions and it may look like it. It may say things to you that sound like it cares about you. But I'm telling you, deep inside the hardware and the software of that robot, it could care less if you fell off the earth. So we don't have to fear God because our covenant doesn't contain an if thou art or a thou shalt not condition. We are under the new covenant of grace, the covenant that releases the virtue of faithful love apart from our performance. The covenant that was cut between God and his son on the cross and was witnessed, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. We do not have to turn stones into bread in an effort to provide for ourselves or prove that we are sons of God. I do not have to jump through hoops. I don't have to do anything. There's a light on the inside of me. And it doesn't take people very long to figure out you're different. There's something about you. I've had people through the years go, are you a believer by chance? I said, well, absolutely. I knew there was something different about you. And I had not brought Jesus's name out. I hadn't done any of that stuff. But there's a light on the inside of us. There's a glory that he's put on the inside of us. And so the covenant was cut between the Father and the Son. That's why we can't mess it up. Ratified by the sweet Holy Spirit who said, yes, I'll sign that, I'll seal that till the day of redemption, and I'll deliver that to the people. Another culprit that camouflages and marginalizes the virtues of the Father is when the understanding from the Scriptures is not based upon historical, cultural, new covenant, and literal context. And without context, what happens is we often believe and adhere to things that simply are not true. And then what we do is we build them into a mindset. We build them into a stronghold. We build them into default. We build them into a doctrine, if you will. We build them into a belief system. This is who I am. This is the way I think. Don't try to change me. So in plain English, what we do is we embrace interpretations that corrupt the original intention of the scriptures and it takes us to heartbreak hotel every time and leaves us in intermittent confusion and fear listen a doctor doesn't bring a baseball bat to surgery <laughs> and a baseball player doesn't bring a scalpel to batting practice now both of these are instruments of their profession but the scalpel is out of place in the hands of a baseball player and the Baseball bat is not fitting in the hands of a doctor, in the hands of a surgeon. Friends, the old covenant, listen to me carefully, the old covenant at work in the heart of a believer 
is as useless as an ice cream scooper in the hands of a fireman. It has no ability to help people in their time of need. It doesn't. Now look, if you work for Baskin Robbins, it's a, it's a useful tool, isn't it? But it cannot put out a fire. And if you and I think that we're going to put out the raging fire that is in our souls at time by pursuing and adhering to old covenant laws and doctrine, I'm telling you, it's like bringing a ice cream scooper to a fire. It's just not going to happen. I'm talking about the fire of fear and condemnation. These are two that the enemy loves to use. If you can make a man afraid, if you can make a man feel condemned, you have wrecked that man for a long time. Until that fear, until that condemnation is cut away, until it's displaced, until it's gone, he will always be in and out. His emotions will be just up and down all over the place. It's like a crazy eight with him. So I'm talking about the fire of fear and condemnation that like a volcano will from time to time erupt in our souls. It's not always there. You take people that are under condemnation and fear, there are times that they're not walking in that. They're just not thinking about it. But it is like a volcano that at times, all of a sudden, it comes bursting forth with this power and it spills all over the place and does a lot of destruction. The fire that is burning in the souls of man is extinguished only through the revelation of the faithful love of Christ, of God, His virtue. We must learn to trust in Christ's finished work or we will continuously walk in fear. Now, millions of people, including believers, are dealing with inflamed emotions. Let me ask you a question. Where do these inflamed emotions come from? Now, listen to me carefully about this, okay? Come on, let's be honest. Let's be practical for a second. Let's just be real. Inflamed emotions stem from many sources. One source can be something as simple as hormones that are either under or overproducing in our body. You know what they are? They're like chemical messengers and they travel throughout your body, even into your mind. And it affects things like our growth. It affects things like our metabolism. It affects fertility. Did you know that hormones can influence the function of the immune system and even alter a man's behavior. They can alter a man's rationale. Friends, listen, listen to me carefully. There is no shame in taking medication. It may help you through a crisis and it may even save your life. Now, many believers won't like that answer. You want to know why? I'm going to tell you why. It's because they want to spiritualize everything. They want to blame everything on the devil. Sometimes they want to blame it on God. Some name it and claim it and take it home and frame it. Some talk to their problems. Some talk about their problems. But unfortunately, many believers allow their problems to talk to them. When Jesus had a problem talking to him in the wilderness, what was his response? Jesus had a problem talking to him too. It was the enemy. He said to him, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So again, drawing you back to the scriptures, when problems begin to speak to you, when issues of life begin to speak to you, they've got a voice. They've got a loud voice at times. We draw our hearts back to it is written. What do the scriptures say in my time of need? <laughs> Let me ask you a question. What kind of poppycock do your problems talk to you about? 
Do they say things like, if you really are a son of God, then do something to prove it. Shouldn't you act more Christian-like? Shouldn't you be more like Christ? Do they say that kind of stuff to you? Do they say stuff like, it's a dog-eat-dog world, you know, get used to providing for yourself? They speak that kind of stuff to you? Do they say things like, it's too late. You broke a commandment. Friends, we have got to quit allowing the flesh to write our speeches. And we've got to go back to the written word. What does the word say? It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Man does not live by the natural. So all these natural things that we think we can come up with. No, man does not live by the natural alone. He lives by the word of God. All of this other nonsense is just rhetoric. It's lies from the enemy to camouflage and marginalize the virtue of faithful love. He does not want you to see God's faithful love. He wants to put it out here so that your peripheral can't even pick it up. He wants to camouflage it so well that you can be staring right at it, but still can't see it. I'm telling you, God's love is faithful. God knows not anything but to be faithful. So by blending the old covenant with the new covenant, that's one problem. And then not understanding biblical context of scriptures, that's the second problem. Our emotions are incessantly assaulted with fear and shame and guilt and condemnation and exhaustion. We begin to search the scriptures in a frantic desperation to find an opioid for physical pain, a steroid to calm inflammation, and an antidepressant that will soothe our emotional anguish. But after a few minutes, after a few minutes in the scriptures, we often give up because we don't feel like the scriptures are speaking to us. I understand that conundrum. We have an issue, we go to the scriptures. The scriptures don't seem to address our specific situation, so it's hard sometimes to find the scripture that's going to communicate to you, the scripture that's going to speak to you. Friends, let me encourage you to read the scriptures, to study the scriptures, and to meditate on the scriptures. And the Father will take something so simple, so ridiculous almost in the scriptures, and he will speak to you about your situation. He always does. Could it be that we are not hearing the still small voice of the Spirit because of the runaway emotions of fear, guilt, shame, and condemnation? Could it be that they're so overwhelming? Could it be that they're so overpowering and so exhausting that they have obstructed our ability to see, our ability to hear the virtue of faithful love? Could it be that? If a man is in a boxing ring, and he has an opponent in front of him, but he has a, two or three opponents behind him, I'm telling you, he is going to fail. And so even though we have God in front of us, and we're trying to embrace this faithful love of the Father, but you have all these enemies surrounding you. Fear is an enemy. Guilt is an enemy. Shame is an enemy. Exhaustion is an enemy. Condemnation is an enemy. Performance, turning your own stones into bread, that is an enemy. And when all of them surround you and they're beating against your mind and they're buffeting you, I'm telling you, I understand that situation. But we're drawn back to, I know the word works. It is written in the word. If I'll just set aside all this other nonsensical stuff and focus upon what does the word say? What is my father trying to communicate in this situation? I'm telling you, he will bring you through that storm. He will bring you through that emotional volcano. 
Could it be that through mixing the old covenant with the new covenant that we have entered into a state of confusion? Now, please hear me on this. I'm just trying to be real with you. When you mix those two together, you end up in a state of confusion. I mean, I've said it before, it'd be like mixing regular playing cards with old maid cards, shuffling them together and dealing them out. That would just be very confusing. You wouldn't know what game you're playing and how this one works in this game. It would just be very confusing. It's the same way when we mix the old covenant with the new covenant. Under the old covenant, it was all about performance to become. Under the new covenants, Jesus has already done everything for us so that we could become. Become what? Become the righteousness of God in Christ. Become sons and daughters of God. So could it be that that confusion, one of those enemies is confusion. Could it be something as simple as mixing the old covenant with the new covenant? Yes, friends, I think that is the number one culprit. I really do. I'm talking about the confusion that convinces us to bring a scalpel to a baseball game, a baseball bat to a surgical room, and an ice cream scooper to a fire. None of these make sense, but when we're caught in the grip of fear, your senses aren't working. It's just a, a strong emotion. We're caught in the grip of fear. Fear of what? Fear of punishment, condemnation. You know what? All that seems and feels so real to us. Therefore, you know what we do? We respond in illogical ways. We respond in ways that we normally wouldn't respond if we had time to think about it. But in the moment, in the moment when fear and confusion and doubt and punishment and condemnation and guilt and shame and performance, all these things are attacking us at one time. This is the kind of stuff that happens. That's why it's so important to be absolutely convinced. It's so important to be absolutely assured it's so important to have this absolute confidence, like Sarah saying about today, confidence in his promises and that they still stand. And so that when the enemies come and surround us, and they will, friends, we can say, no, I'm confident. I'm confident in his promises. I'm going to stand through this whole situation, no matter what assails me. Friends, just because it's dark outside doesn't mean the sun is burned out. Feels that way, doesn't it? It's dark! The sun must have burned out. Oh no, friends, the sun is still shining. It's just on the other side of the world, that's all. The scriptures tell us, but you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. I love that scripture. That's found in the book of Malachi. You who revere, you who worship, you who honor my name, you who know my name. He said the son of righteousness and son is S-U-N, not S-O-N, but in Malachi, it's S-U-N of righteousness. They capitalize son, they capitalize righteousness. Why are they doing that? And they said the son of righteousness, look, an object can't be righteous. So you know he's alluding to a figure, a person somewhere. He said, for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing, not in its wings, healing in his wings. Did you ever see that scripture? It's in Malachi. I believe it's chapter four. I don't have the scripture with me today, but he said, for you who revere, you who have put your confidence your trust in my name. We sang about his name today. Wonderful, beautiful, powerful. He said, you who put your trust 
Quit trying to turn your stones into bread. You're not trusting in me when you do that. But you who trust in me, revere my name. He said, there's something that's going to happen. The son of righteousness is going to rise with healing. That's virtue. That's power. He's going to rise with healing in his wings. Friends, the son of righteousness is an Old Testament prophecy by Malachi. And I know they're speaking about Jesus right here because he is the son of righteousness. He's the one who's risen from the grave with healing in his wings. Absolutely. Did you know that wings that Malachi are talking about refer to the border of the garment? I think we've heard this before, but it refers to the border of the garment, not these little flapping things on the side. It's talking about the wings of his garment. The same border that the woman with the issue of blood touched and was completely healed. Did you see that? She touched his wings. She touched the border of his garment. And prophet said, look, for you who revere my name, you who trust in me, you who honor me, you who come to me, you who put your faith in me. He said, the son of righteousness is going to rise up with healing in his wings. We see this story in Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 40. I love this story. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. And a woman having an issue of blood 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border. That word border literally means the wings. Do you see this now? She touched the border of his garment because she was familiar with that Old Testament prophecy. She knew what the wings meant. It's the border of the garment. And if I can just but touch his garment, I shall be made whole. So she comes in behind him and she touched the border of his garment. And it says, and immediately, immediately her issue of blood staunched. Through this narrative, we see the fulfillment of the Malachi prophecy. Friends, this woman, listen to me, she has been continuously bleeding for 12 years years not one day on one day off continuously bleeding for 12 years she's anemic she's low on iron her red blood cells are starving for oxygen she's cold even on hot days and she's exhausted even after a long night of sleep for 12 successive years she felt like she had been beaten with a baseball bat she felt like every physician had run their scalpel over her issue of blood, but all it did was bankrupt her and she was none the better. She felt like a fireman had brought an ice cream scooper to her fire, but couldn't extinguish her pain. You see, for 12 years, she tried to make her own bread, but in the process, the physicians took hers. Do you see that? She's running. She's doing what she knows to do. She's resourceful. I get it. She's running from physician to physician, doctor to doctor, nurse to nurse. And all they're doing is taking her bread. The scriptures tell us that she had spent all of her living, all of her bread, 
Her identity had become known as the unclean woman, the one who bleeds. That was her identity. That was the label that they had hung on her. Fear, guilt, shame, condemnation, and exhaustion had overtaken her. Her hormones had under and overproduced and had even altered her behavior. But, but when she heard about Jesus coming through, it gave her one last surge of energy, one last ray of hope, enough energy and hope to press through the crowd with destiny altering faith, the faith that would encounter the virtue of faithful love. Now, by law, she had no right to be in a public setting or to touch another human being. Due to the issue of blood, she was considered unclean. When you were bleeding, you were considered unclean. For 12 prolonged years, she yearned to touch someone or to do something as simple as go to the marketplace. But she was under the Levitical law, which assigned her the identity of unclean. How would you like to have that label on you? Friends, there is nothing about me that is unclean. I have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm as clean as I ever will be. Don't you ever try to put that label on me. I'll look at you and say, you have lost your little doggy brain, friend. I am as clean as Christ is. In Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25, we find the Levitical law that showed her she would be unclean. It says, if a woman has a flow of blood for many days that is unrelated to her menstrual period, or if the blood continues beyond the normal period, she is ceremonially unclean. As during her menstrual period, the woman will be unclean as long as the discharge continues. Do you see what they used to do to you? Friends, if you were bleeding from any orifice on your body, I don't care what it was, you were considered unclean. And you had to be almost quarantined. You could not function with the general population. So for this woman to come out and find and seek out Jesus to come and touch his wings, to come and touch the border of his garment, you can see how desperate she is. But at the same time, you can see she knows there's something in this man. There's a virtue in this man that I could be healed if I can just but touch the hem of his garment. Friends, her state of being not only affected her, but it affected her loved ones. Her physical condition had also permeated and affected her soul. Friends, you can't have a physical condition without it messing with your mind. You know that, don't you? Eventually, it's going to mess with this right up here. Because you're going to begin to question, why am I not healed? What seems to be the problem? And then this condemnation, all this guilt, shame, fear, exhaustion, performance, turning stones into bread, all that starts to mess with your mind. Friends, it is written. We go to the scriptures. We find comfort in the scriptures. Sometimes we just find wisdom in the scriptures. But we find assurance. We find our confidence in the scriptures. Could it be that simple? Really? Could it be that simple? Just touch the wings of Jesus' garment and virtue will flow from him? Could it be that easy? Then why weren't the Roman guards healed and delivered when they touched Jesus' garment? Do you remember? They did that, didn't they? They took the garment off of him. The Bible says they cast lots for his garment. 
So if it was something as simple as just touching the garment, touching the wings of the garment, why wasn't everybody healed? Why wasn't everybody saved and delivered? Why didn't everybody become a son or a daughter? They touched the same robe that the woman touched, but nothing happened. Friends, the Roman guards were not changed because they did not touch Jesus in faith. Just so simple. Do you see that? They didn't touch him in faith. Friends, that's all the woman with the issue of blood had left. Faith. Everything else was gone. Her faith, married with the grace of God, released the virtue of faithful love. I'm talking about the John 3.16, John 3.17 love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That is God's love. And it poured out of Christ even through a touch on his garment. Friends, the father did not send Jesus into the world to just remind us that we're unfaithful and unclean, but rather to demonstrate the virtue of faithful love, a love without condemnation. Jesus said that himself. There is no condemnation. I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. That word save means to heal you. It means to deliver you. It means to set you free. This is the reason I've come. Let's look at that scripture again with the woman. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. And a woman having an issue of blood for 12 years, which had spent all of her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched what? The wings. Touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood staunched. Next scriptures. And Jesus said, Who touched me? This is the humanity side of Christ. He doesn't really know. He's not playing a game here. There's people touching him. He said, who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee. And sayest thou, who touched me? He said, why are you asking that? How do we know? And Jesus said, somebody. Oh, get those words in your heart today. Somebody hath touched me. For I perceive that virtue, God's qualities, God's moral excellence, virtue is gone out of me. In other words, Jesus said, this was a different kind of touch. I know what it's like to be touched when someone just wants your autograph. I know what it's like to be touched when someone's just ushering you down a hallway, but this touch was different. This one has some faith attached to it. This one was different. Yes, we're talking about healing virtue for the woman with the issue of blood, but that healing virtue has a fountainhead, friends. And that fountainhead is rooted in the Father's faithful love. Everything is about Daddy's love. Everything comes out of His love. His grace is because He loves us. His mercy is because He loves us. His compassion is because he loves us. His kindnesses are because he loves us. That is the fountainhead. Daddy's love. The father's faithful love. Therefore, we can say that the woman with the issue of blood 
was healed by grace through faith in the virtue of faithful love. You can sum it all up by saying that. Yes, it was by God's grace. Nobody is saved apart from God's grace. It was by faith. Yes, it was by faith. But the underpinning current of this whole thing was daddy's love, his faithful love. Continued in the scriptures. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, in other words, she's making a scene. The mascara is running. She can't hide her emotions anymore. When she saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. The woman with the issue of blood is a great picture for all of humanity. We almost ought to have that picture above our mantle at home. You see, at one time we all had an issue of blood. We had the blood of Adam, a blood disorder that physicians couldn't heal and money couldn't buy its way out of. But through a single touch of Christ, through a single touch of Jesus, everything changed for the unclean woman, beginning with her identity. Very important here. Beginning with her identity. She went from a somebody, remember? Jesus said, somebody touch me. She went from a somebody to a daughter. Be of good comfort. She no longer had to labor to find her cure for her issue of blood. She was no longer responsible for making her own bread or for stopping her own bleeding. Jesus did it all. Did he do it all? Jesus did it all! How did this miracle take place, you ask? I'll be happy to tell you. Virtue was released by grace through faith. What kind of virtue am I talking about? I'm talking about the virtue of faithful love. Friends, God is easily touched by our infirmities. He is the author of life. He is the author of love. And the only way out of our nonsensical bombardment of bleeding emotions, beginning by abandoning the rhetoric and lies of the enemy and placing our trust solely in the virtue of faithful love. I'm talking about the love that delivers a death blow to fear and condemnation. Did you know love did that? It delivers a death blow to fear and condemnation. Look at the next scripture. 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Friends, I'm talking about the same love that Jesus relied on when he was in the wilderness fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And so we know and we rely. In other words, we have confidence. We have trust. We rely. I'm relying on you. I'm trusting in you. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. And then it says, God is love. God does not just have love. God is the fountainhead of love. He is the source of love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Didn't I tell you he's the author of life and love? This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence 
on the day of judgment. See, we like confidence. We don't like that second word, judgment. We can have confidence even on the day of judgment, it says. In this world, we are like Jesus. See, you don't think you're, you're like Jesus, do you? You are like Jesus. Do the scriptures say that? It says, in this world, not just in heaven, that would be a gimme. In this world, we are like Jesus. And then he says, there is no fear in love. Do you see that? No fear in love. Where are we at? We're in Christ. Christ is love. There's no fear in love, but perfect love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. So perfect love drives out fear. And why do we fear? Because we're thinking about punishment. But if we're Walking in perfect love, if we understand that we have this perfect love from the Father, it drives out fear. And you know what it does? It reaches back and grabs the hand of punishment and just takes it right with it. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, don't let that put you under condemnation. It just means you are not tapping in to the love, the faithful love that the Father has for you, just not resting in that. And so that's why you're going to have fear and you're going to be thinking about punishment. You're going to have this condemnation. And then it says, we love because he first loved us. It was not your idea. It was not my idea. It was his idea. We can only love because he first loved us. Friends, you will be happy to know that the faithful love of the father has no off switch. <laughs> it has no off switch. Aren't you happy to know that? Why? Because it's faithful love. It has no off switch. You'll also be delighted to know that there is no such thing as perfect love that is not accompanied by faithful love. They are one and the same. The word perfect means without fault. It means without defect. It means without flaw. The Father's love for us is a perfect love, a faithful love. A love without fault, without blemish, without defect, without flaw. So our blood disorder has been staunched. That Adam's blood that was flowing through us at one time has been staunched. Adam's sinful and imperfect blood was replaced by Jesus' sinless and perfect blood. This perfect blood comes from the perfect and faithful love that the Father has given us and His perfect and faithful love can only reproduce after its own kind. Amen? If his love is the love that's living on the inside of us, he said everything produces after its own kind. So that means I can expect to walk in his perfect love. And I can expect to dispense his faithful love and his perfect love. And it gets the condemnation off of me that I've got to make my own bread. No, I don't have to make my own bread. So you just got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. My closing thoughts would be these. I was meditating this past week about the struggles that so many people, including believers, are experiencing in their attempt to really wrap their religious hearts and minds and emotions around the truths that we are without fault, without defect, and without flaw before the Father. I'm talking about in our spirit, man. Friends like the woman with the issue of blood our blood disorder has been staunched. It's been cut off, friends. 
the Son of Righteousness, has risen from the grave with healing in his wings, and this healing is for you and me, us and we. I don't take the time to watch much television, but one of the shows I really like to watch is America's Got Talent. I love the diversity of talents and gifts, and I can appreciate the investment of time that it takes for these people behind the scenes to hone out that talent, hone out that gifting. And one of the hardest acts to watch can be a comedian. Why? Because his or her job at that moment is to make everyone laugh. The audience's laughing is an instant measuring stick of whether or not that comedian is successful. I'm telling you, if he says something, if she says something, there's no laugh. He was not successful in that moment. It's an instant measuring stick. Was I successful? And so I've watched certain ones with very funny material, and you'll laugh quite a bit, only to watch them again, and there was nothing about their act that was funny. I can't help but think that that has got to be one of the most fearful and condemning moments of life. You have been measured by your audience. And they have said, you're not funny. That sounds like you. <laughs> that sounds like me, doesn't it? We have a successful Christian day and then we celebrate only to have a day following where we experience condemnation because it wasn't such a good day. Friends, the fountainhead of this condemnation is not from God. Furthermore, we are not measured by our own perfection, and we are not measured by what other people think. We are not measured by our audience's approval. We are measured by the virtue of faithful love, living on the inside of us, the Father, seeing Christ living in our lives. And so there are so many people in this world that are struggling with their own issue of blood. They're struggling with their own identity crisis. By their own measuring stick, they fall short. Friends, you would be good to just take your measuring stick and throw it on a fire. Quit trying to make your own bread, get in the Word, and you will see the virtue of Christ shining through you like the Son of Righteousness. I'm talking about people that have neither known or believed in the faithful love of the Father. I'm talking about the people that are so fragile that they are one argument away from divorce one unexpected expense away from bankruptcy, one incident away from a nervous breakdown, one health crisis away from death. And unfortunately, there are people that believe that they are one sin away from losing their salvation. And in the midst of these frantic emotions, I want to remind us that we are not held together by our own bread-making skills. We are held together by the virtue faithful love. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, we find these words. He says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You see the invitation? All you got to do is be thirsty. He says, Come, all you that are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? Why spend your energy on trying to create your own bread? Why do you spend money on that which is not bread? And your labor 
on what does not satisfy. Next scripture. He says, listen, and listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear, that means go to the word, give ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. Look what he says. He says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. That was the inspiration for this message right there. He said, I've got a faithful love and I made a promise to David. You know what David means? His name means beloved. That's the same thing he calls you and me. We're his beloved. Please note that faithful love is tied to a covenant. Do you see that? He says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to my beloved. Friends, hear those words ring in your heart today. Answer the phone, please. It's daddy trying to say, I've got this everlasting covenant with you. And it came about because of my faithful love, not your faithful love, my faithful love. And it came through a promise and a covenant. And I call you my beloved. Friends, this is what the woman with the issue of blood did. She came to Jesus, the source of living waters, because she was thirsty for her healing. Today is the day. I've made up my mind, kind of like Valerie, the day when she was delivered from fibromyalgia. She said, this moment, I've come to the waters. I've come to the fountain of waters because I have thirsted too long. I've been under condemnation too long, but this moment is my moment. That woman did what the scripture said. You who have no money, (laughs) come by and eat. She had no money. Remember, she gave it away to the physicians. You who have no money, come by and eat. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? You see, the physicians couldn't help her. But when she heard about Jesus' reputation for healing and deliverance, she gave ear and came to listen that she may live. Jesus let the woman with the issue of blood know that he had done more for her than just stop the bleeding. He welcomed her into his family. She went from a somebody to a daughter. All of this without money and without cost. Jesus gave her the gift of an everlasting covenant by grace, through faith, through the virtue of faithful love. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Jesus didn't bring a baseball bat so that he could beat the living fear and condemnation right out of us. With his own words, he told us that he didn't come to condemn, he came to save. Jesus didn't bring a scalpel to cut the rotten spots out of us. Instead, he threw away the entire man and made us a new creation in Christ. The scriptures say, behold, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. I just don't cut the rotten spots out. He's a new creation. Behold, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Jesus didn't bring an ice cream scooper to put out the fire. He brought a cross 
And on that blood-soaked cross on Mount Calvary, He released the virtue of faithful love to every whosoever and to every somebody so that he could transform us into sons and daughters. In Jesus' death, he gave us new identity, an identity that is rooted in a beautiful father-son relationship. I'm talking about a relationship that brings the qualities and the moral excellence and the virtue of faithful love up close and personal, all without money and all without cost. Friends, in Christ, there is no if thou be, or thou shalt not conditions to our salvation. The new covenant is between the Father and the Son, witnessed and ratified by the Holy Spirit, signed, sealed, and delivered. There is no need for us to follow the promptings of the enemy or the flesh in an effort to prove our salvation. We are one with Christ Jesus through an everlasting covenant. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Friends, we have camouflaged and marginalized the virtues of our faultless and flawless Father too long. Through subtle ways, ways that we've lost touch with, by mixing the old covenant with the new covenant, by taking scriptures out of historical, cultural, and literal context, by thinking that we were responsible for our own provision, and by believing that we should fear Papa God when we sin. All of this is nonsense, poppycock if you will, and it is the perfect recipe for inflamed emotions and issues that will never heal. But Jesus came with a message. What was his message? His message was this. We can rely. We can rely on the love of God. We can rely on the love of his Father for us. Through God's love, we are made complete so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Friends, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment, but in Christ, there is no punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. In other words, they have not understood perfect love. Friends, we love because he first loved us. So let's just ask that question one more time. In what manner of love does the Father love us with? He loves us with an everlasting love through an everlasting covenant. This is the virtue of faithful love. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we thank you so much that we can just get rid of our bread-making machines. They don't help us when it pertains to salvation. Jesus did it all on a cross on Mount Calvary. We thank you, Father, that when we're surrounded by the enemies of guilt, shame, fear, condemnation, performance, exhaustion, whatever they may be, we can look to the Word and we can declare, it is written! Man does not live by natural substance alone. He does not live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So Father, I'm asking you to take the listeners' hearts that hear this message 
and begin to do a work in them so that they can see that they can just get rid of this old covenant mentality. You have put us under the new covenant. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become brand new. We don't bring our bats to the surgical room. We don't bring our scalpel to the baseball field. We don't bring an ice cream scooper to a fire. Father, none of that makes sense. We bring Christ to every situation, everything that we've got to deal with, for he truly is the one who extinguishes the raging fire in our emotions. And how does he do that? By grace through faith. Faith in what? Faith in the virtue of your faithful life. In Jesus' name, amen.